Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And today we have guest Alex Santamaria here. And Alec, I know you as a violist uh, who frequently plays uh, viola in orchestra stuff at my church. Tell us more about yourself, though, besides just my perspective of you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. And um, it's wonderful being back here. It feels like Christmas came early, um, <laughs> yeah. yet not early enough, uh, <laughs> given the last year. But um, yeah. glad to be back with you guys in person. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, so, finally. well, I, I don't know if we like had met at UCLA, but we definitely had uh, Christian and I uh, contacts uh, from there. That's right. Yeah. I, yeah, I graduated from there in 2017. Uh, I grew up in L.A., um, just the northern L.A. area. Started playing violin when I was six, viola when I was uh, in seventh grade. Um, I just fell in love with the, with the tone of it. It really kind of reinvigorated my musical interest, even just being so young. Um, went to L.A. County High School for the Arts. Um, I have uh, appeared at at uh, Tanglewood, uh, Idlewild, nice. um, cool. made a European debut uh, in the middle of, of college, um, just playing chamber music, doing things like that. Um, music has taken me as far and wide as I could have ever hoped, and uh, you know, something in me just is saying the best is yet to come. So that's cool. Yeah, I particularly like the that you started on violin and found and the reason that you went to viola was because you like the tone because it's like i always like to hear that that side of things especially when somebody moves from one of the more like common instruments to the less common instrument viola ends up being kind of like i don't know maybe underappreciated what do you think do you think it's underappreciated absolutely so yeah. um well i guess i guess a little little plug for my for my teacher at ucla uh richard o'neill mm-hmm. um he he just won the Grammy for Best Classical Instrumental Solo Performance. Yeah. He began his acceptance speech with, this is a great day for the viola. Yeah. Uh, he, he's like the second violist to, to have won that award, the first being Kim Kashkashian like a decade or two um, ago. And and it was uh, Theophanidis's uh, viola concerto, a, a living American composer. Cool. I, I really think that's just amazing that, uh, because it's like, yeah, like viola doesn't have the most uh, big concertos, sonatas um, that are known. I mean, there are definitely examples, you know, from from Telemann to the uh, to the big concertos of the 20th century, mm-hmm. um, and and just amazing sonatas. Um, you know, I from like Hindemith to I mean, there's just yeah. there's, there's there there is repertoire there, but um, I mean, it's orig- it's originally a viola piece. That's what's so exciting about it. That's that's what gets me so excited about a Rebecca Clark sonata. You know, it's a hundred years old, and and she knew the viola. You know, Hindemith knew the yeah. viola. And uh, but going back to like how I uh, found viola, how I switched uh, to it, it was actually from Bach. Um, the the cello suites. I I always loved the cello suites. Um, I loved anything by by Bach that I would hear in like. Uh, Suzuki, you know, I had a Suzuki CD because I uh, played books like one through four, you know, on violin and then viola. But when I found out that you could play the cello suites, uh, just the, uh, just an octave up, it has the same strings. Right. I was really excited about that. So. Yeah. Cool. 
Yeah, so so for the listeners who are wondering how this works, Bach did write these suites for cello, but cello and viola have strings of the same notes. It's just that the viola strings sound an octave higher. So if you rewrite the music, you can basically play it, most of them just on the viola, right, Alec? Exactly, um, and the, the voicing um, on, on the strings is is the same. So really, yeah. like... If you're going to play the cello suites on any instrument other than cello, viola, you know, would be the most natural choice. Mm-hmm. And Bach uh, did play the viola. He totally you know? did. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about Brandenburg Three, and we both picked. So, like, typically the format is, like, one of us will pick a moment we love. Then we'll both chat about it. The next week, the other one of us will talk about it. And we'll both chat. But this this time, we just, for, for whatever reason, we decided, let's let's each pick a moment from Brandenburg 3, Movement 3, that we liked the best. And then when we came to record, we both had already just picked the same exact moment, which is the viola solo. It's the, it's the, it's the part in Brandenburg 3, Movement 3. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, 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 It's like eight bars long. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty short, and it repeats once. Like, it, there's a repeat, yeah. so you get to hear it a couple of times. And the the prevailing theory seems to be that Bach played that part and led the performance playing that <laughs> that's part. a cool theory i don't know if it's true but it right. definitely sounds like he wrote the vo- the viola one part for himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it yeah. seems to make it's got that it's got some really nice little solo i mean and, and if bach ever played these uh suites himself uh he likely would have played it on viola that's true so, maybe he yeah. maybe when he wrote these he played them on viola like to try them out and stuff and yeah yeah um so i have my viola on me um yeah I, I do need to tune it, but uh, I'd love to share some box yes. with you guys. Yeah, oh, it'd be great. So we tune uh, we tune our instruments now the same same way they would have done it centuries ago. Yeah, using it yeah. using an app. I, <laughs> on your phone. No, I was just I was just gonna say though because I tune from the from the A and then like you know tuning uh, through double stops and of course each double stop will be like um, like bigger than equal temperament would be and like that's that's a thing that I've I mean, always kind of like scratched my head over. Um, in particular, uh, like like recently with starting to play with ensembles again, it's like, you know, the way I tuned when it was just me um, by myself, you know, is it's different from when I hear an oboist or a violinist in an orchestra. Um, and I want to make sure that everything is like as close to even tempered as can be, so that you know my open strings, everything can just resonate with all other instruments. So when you tune by yourself are you just are you doing a little more of like the just temperament kind of thing um yeah i think i think i am just because uh because i'm not so worried about um playing with playing with others um that has actually an interesting effect on on voicing um how how things are going to sound like Um, which strings you're using for certain chords and stuff yeah or, or just like how each sound yeah how each string like sounds when i use it yeah, I, we talked a little bit about it in episode six, I want to say it was, when we talked about the, the well-tempered clavier. I think that was episode oh, yeah. six. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how equal temperament is used now and it was brand new in box day. And it is basically like the, the space between C and C sharp is the exact same as the space between C sharp and D and D and D sharp and et cetera. And it's not how it used to be. And what Alec is talking about, I think right here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that like tuning it, your instrument when you're playing by yourself you have the luxury to sort of tune it the old way a little more which is more perfect really with the intervals they're actually the perfect ratios but the reason why we don't do that anymore is because you can't play in all these different keys when you do that 
it makes certain keys like sound out of tune where it whereas it makes other ones like the more common ones sound really good but the trade-off there like now we just use equal temperament because the trade-off is like like you're saying playing with all these other instrumentalists then you guys are really always going to be in tune no matter what key you're playing in so that just makes sense but there is it's kind of sad you do lose something and when you hear it and when you hear these these groups play in original uh just intonation it's like it's really cool it's really nice it's a it's a purer sound on some of these chords yeah yeah it's not um and it's not something that uh that we dive very deep into um as string players like studying at a um, as music majors at a university uh, or a conservatory it's it's a it's a great untapped thing i think except of course uh in in early music ensembles um yeah i think those ensembles uh really uh they try to go you know they go all in in terms of uh well whatever the 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 theory is um as to as to how whichever composer how they tuned uh and trying to recreate that and and the effects and that like it defies i think our uh modern ear in saying when we think oh this is in tune this is not in tune yeah um yeah the reference pitches like are they're, they're not set on this absolute scale like there's there's room there's i don't know like it's it's a it's it's complicated the, yeah. the whole story of intonation yeah. you know what what's it could you give an example by playing about like i know you've just tuned your instrument so i don't know did you tune it with an equal temperament or are you tuning um, more of like a it, i i tuned it key? more more kind of more justly um yeah so these are basically uh perfect fifths um i imagine uh, the keyboard will have um like a narrower f fifth here between A and D, uh, D and G, and G and C. But, so if I play... Okay, well, also, this instrument, viola, is fretless. The cello is fretless, you know, the violin family, it's it's fretless. So, I can tune, We I have, okay, in suite one, in G major, Bach begins uh, a lot of the movements, um, the, the prelude, the sarabande, the, uh, the allemande, the minuet, with uh, with some version of this chord. Now I want to tune this note, B the third, um, in tune with this D, as well as this G. Um, which I think uh, on a on a keyboard this uh, B would be higher. I don't know mm. where exactly, but um, yeah. yeah, and yeah, you can hear the difference there. The last B you just played was a little higher. Yeah, and and it and it's and it's bright. You know, the that chord it just has a different personality. If you if I bring if I bring it up, mm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's really like. But if I really try to make this beat blend with uh, the, the bass notes below it, it has a warmth to it. Mm. Yeah. So. Cool. That's yeah. very interesting. And that's like, another way to think of this is like, Alec, the way that you tuned it lower is like 
the acoustic way that it actually is like naturally in tune, right? Yeah. And that it, explains like, why it's warmer and more natural. And there's a there's a blend to the to the chord, um, and like there are notes that that ring out, um, which aren't present if you're if you're tuning in equal temperament. You know, the waveforms are like lining up in this nice proportion. Yeah, and it yeah. has to do with the overturn series, which we kind of mentioned in previous episodes, it's right? It's really it's really math, really. Yeah. And a good way to summarize it would be that the compromise, which you have to do when you have all 12 notes fixed, like, for instance, on a piano or an organ or a guitar that has frets, let's a say. A well-tempered keyboard, um, like what, like right. that's why it's called that, yeah. And it's equally tuned. The compromise means that when you play certain chords or harmonies together, we don't really know this. We don't really think about it these days, and we don't. We're so used to it, but they're not exactly in tune, right? They're not to the, to the most natural degree because they can't be. And so, a major third from a lower note is going to be a little bit too big, and therefore a little bit sharp. And like Alec was saying, you can use it to your advantage to make something sound brighter. But to make it sound warmer and darker, it's a thing that you can't do on the piano, you know, because the piano is fixed. So. With the piano, you can play in any different key, but um, all the pitches are fixed, so it has that limitation. Yeah, and the distances between the pitches are are, are the same. Yeah. So it, it's um, Bach calls it the well-tempered clavier, the well-tempered clavier, not the even-tempered clavier. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this open question as to what tuning system he was he was using. Yeah, it's not actually clear that he meant perfectly equal thing yeah could it have been that it was like closer to equal but not exactly because the the thing is is that there's there's preludes and and fugues in every key yeah so it means that it must have sounded okay to play in Mm -hmm. all these obscure keys like c sharp minor or whatever or f sharp major and and different keys in the baroque era were tied to different like emotional affectations right so so maybe the ones that sounded a little wonky were were like that on purpose you know? yeah that's true i'd love to hear the well-tempered clavier on uh played on keyboard instruments that predate it you know uh, so yeah. like on a church organ um you know that's centuries old even before before bach or, or just before um i guess this uh this long-term movement to standardize pitch sets uh especially mm-hmm. with keyboard instruments yeah this is what gets me really excited about people who play on the period instruments and that's why Alex and I love using the recordings from the Netherlands Box Society because they play on period instruments like gut string, string playing and th- stuff like that. And their tuning is also, I guess, probably a pretty well-informed guess at some of the Bach tuning. And most of the big works I think that we've encountered so far, Alex, have been about a half step lower than what they would, than how they are notated in modern day pitch, right? Yeah. Because just playing along with these examples on the piano, we notice that, and we basically just end up playing them a half step lower. A uh, couple exceptions, some of the organ works we've looked at. We looked at Pasacalli in C minor, and for whatever reason, he plays that on an instrument that's like tuned to actually to C minor when he's playing it, you know. Mm. But the other ones, yeah, we if you're listening, and those of you with perfect pitch that have been listening to the episodes might be a little annoyed at some of this stuff because <laughs> we'll say yeah. like, and then the they sing an A, and then I'll play a g sharp and everybody's like what you know perfect yeah, pitch people might be perfect yeah. pitch is, a, is an interesting thing and i don't have it alex you don't have it and i, I do do you yeah i mean i kind of wish i didn't but um 
Right. So Alec, well, it's a blessing Alec and a curse, right? It. So yeah, it's yeah, it's a really mixed bag. And I've had a lot of students in theory and musicianship classes who have perfect pitch, and they have a completely different set of challenges in terms of yeah. hearing and listening. Makes and things. some things easier and some things harder, right, Alec? Yeah. I mean, so when when I say that I have perfect, well, generally I I, I would prefer absolute pitch because you know my perception, my human ear, you know, is is never going to be perfect. But um, yeah, it's it's funny my relationship with with pitches. Um, because also I don't know what what Netherlands Bach Society's A is maybe A four fifteen yeah know, I think it's um, I think it's which around is like a there. bit which is a, which is a little bit bigger than a half step or or somewhere it know, sounds like to me very close to a half step right mm-hmm. yeah. so I can still hear their open A's um, and 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 hear and you know hear the timbre of an open A string okay. the the resonance of an open string is different than the resonance of a closed string so here's my open A string the brightest um, string at its full length on the viola. Now here's the same pitch, A440, played on the D string. Open string, closed string. The same pitch has a different sound, and then, Mm -hmm. let's see if I can find it on the... That's the same pitch on the the G string, and then now on the C string. Yeah, that, what that the listeners on my, on my C string never gets never yep, gets low. What so. the listeners can't see is that for each of these bigger strings, he has to put his his finger up higher on the fretboard, so he's it's harder to tune up there, right? Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the intervals get smaller as you uh, uh, as you go up the string. All the string, all four strings are the same are the same length, um, so each string just gets thicker for for lower pitches. Yeah. You know, so so when I put my finger on the fingerboard, I'm shortening the string to, to alter the pitch. Right. So, and it's interesting that Alec, the the bigger and bigger strings you use to play that same note, the tone quality kept getting like more veiled and darker, and yeah. maybe warmer. Would be you some kind of tell it's a bigger string just by listening to it. Yeah. It sounds yeah, it sounds like there's more going on. It got on less there. bright and piercing for yeah. sure. And and also uh, with the closed string you can you can use vibrato so no vibrato available on the open string right right yeah so what you ju- what he just played was vibrato of the note A on the D string and then he switched at the end there to the open string a where he could not play vibrato so so vibrato being this uh, altering of the pitch um so in modern string technique um I, i'm 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 here having my my middle finger uh on the d string playing the pitch a which is a fifth above uh the open d rolling my knuckle back so that the tip of my finger the contact point on the fingerboard is um is a little bit lower it makes the string slightly longer Almost uh, a half step lower. Um, well, or you know, you can vary the oscillations. So you can have narrower vibrato, shimmery. You can have mm-hmm. wider vibrato. That was another thing that I that I noticed about about viola vibrato is that because the strings are bigger, uh, generally your vibrato is is a little bit wider. But <laughs> you know, um, it depends on what sound you're going for. Whether you want something nervous or or something wide and broad you know whatever it is yeah 
kind of reminds me of like those older, those kind of old recordings mm-hmm. of of classical music um, from the earlier 20th century. And a lot of the time, or in film score, a lot of the times the vibrato will be really, especially in a solo instrument, will be really obvious. And yeah. I think they probably just learned to just kind of exaggerate it because it was hurt. It'd be heard on w- worse quality mics than what we have now. And you just, you got to kind right. of exaggerate stuff. I mean, yeah. it's, it's grainy and it's, yeah. um, and it has this, this amazing mm-hmm. vibrato. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and in terms of interpretation of, of Bach, you know, of any, of any piece, but you know, I've got the Bach scores in, in front of me. Like, I mean, different, uh, different pieces would be played in, in different ways. So here's, so here's a minuet two in, uh, G minor from the first suite. You know, um, I generally use very little vibrato on this. I mean, the the, the story of of string playing in the last century um, can be told in how soloists play Bach. So. Um, hmm. I mean, these these works, the the, the cello suites. Um, there's no extant copy of of, of the manuscript. <laughs> this okay. very edition, I'm using um, the Peters edition, so uh, you guys can see like how yeah. messed up it is from like a, a pair that was in my backpack and ink <laughs> lot. You know, it's well used. Re- yeah, really it's well is. used. So if th- this version uh, adapted for viola takes from four different sources, from Anna Magdalena, uh, his wife's um, uh, manuscript, and from from a few other sources. But uh, we don't have the manuscript here. These pieces were largely forgotten. Um, it's a question as to whether these pieces were even played, and for whom, um, yeah. during Bach's lifetime, you know. But um, then, then one day, Pablo Casals, uh, the Spanish cellist, found uh, like a, you know, an old copy. <laughs> Maybe one like this uh, at, at at a music store, started playing them, became a very famous soloist. Really brought this in the early twentieth century um, into into the limelight that that it surely deserves and enjoys now. Yeah, um, cool. But okay, so so a soloist, I, I'm no I'm no period performer. But here's what it would sound like if I put in more vibrato. <laughs> So um, they're just very different ways, and then you know. So I was using closed strings for a dark, for a kind of dark sound. There, yeah. I could play uh, in lower positions, uh, have the strings be longer. Yeah, cool. We've talked a little bit about the choices that get made in when you're going to perform this, like this music, like articulation and dynamics and things like that. Yeah. And we, I don't think we've even really touched on this side of it and talking about the positions on the strings and things and how much vibrato on the strings. It's just, there's so much detail. And Boeing's. So and Boeing's, you have, yeah. You have the left hand, which is, which is the intonation, and that can be expressive in its own ways. What, what does a major third sound like? Uh, what, how much vibrato do I put in? Do I use an open or a closed string? And then you have Boeing's, uh, it all comes from 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 the right hand from from the bow, 
So I'm looking now at, at Minuet 1 uh, from the same suite. Um, my understanding of minuets has changed in the last uh, in the last four years, um, maybe only subtly, but so the markings I have here are what I made before a recital um, that I played uh, four years ago of of the uh, first four cello suites, which by the way are on YouTube. And um, <laughs> cool. nice. so I would probably choose different bowings and, and fingerings now, just because uh, you know I'm a I'm a different player than than I was four years ago. Yeah. So I'll just play some uh, just from from here uh, as, as written. <laughs> through it in real time I'm just uh, following the the notes the fingerings um, the bowings that I that I wrote and I didn't follow all of my own uh, notes and bowings and fingerings hmm. uh, there's an in, there's an intuitive sense I have with this piece um, I first learned it like 10 years ago um, the prelude uh, a couple years before that when I was very fresh to the viola I just really wanted to learn it so uh, yeah I mean I don't know if I could tell you what exactly I would I would change I would I would try to start more uh, more phrases on down bows to have that nice minuet feel strong weak weak strong weak weak um, hmm. but you know I'm still you know that said I'm using a modern bow it's it's heavier than the bows that were used in box time it's a uh, it's longer and the end the tip of the bow has quite a lot of strength in it um, just as the frog does the frog has even more of course um, it's closest to my to my hand uh, so you know you can start phrases on, on up bows with the same strength of a down bow if you need to, but in general I try to stay informed by my my understanding of, of how, uh, how the bow was used in box time, which is not to say that I'm gonna try to play in such a in such a way as they played back then, you know, but. There's like a hybrid, you know, like right now is a, it's a hybrid time for, for Vogue because of the movement uh, of, of early music, which I don't know uh, when it really began in modern times, perhaps the, the 1960s or so, but, um, hmm. and, and, you know, because you go back to recordings like from the 40s, from the 30s, you know, they have that, 
big vibrato, yeah, the big, vibrato. big soloistic sound, uh, trying to like fill up the hall or something like that, or, or yeah. trying to like really blare out for for the one microphone you have in the room. Yeah, you know, then and, that might be a holdover from like the the Bach revival stuff that was started by like Mendelssohn and others, like back in the late. It's more like late eighteen eighteen hundreds, right? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like that would have because that's during the Romantic era. It probably was like I think that we have that we're guessing basically that that those performances felt a little more romantic in style. Yeah, as they did would've... as did like things like when the Netherlands Box Society first formed almost a hundred years ago. Mm. Yeah, they would have been doing it the same like romantic. Yeah, way. And eventually they've sort of gotten a little more interested in creating more of the actual period experience with their performances. Right. There's so many different ways you can interpret this old music and good good examples like Handel's Messiah. You can hear so many different versions of that. Mm. You can hear a version that's very authentic with a smaller group. Uh, then you can hear these big old huge romantic versions with a 200 voice choir and and like added parts and instruments and stuff that people are already adding to even generations after his death. Mm-hmm. So what, Alec, is your like, uh, on the first suite, I would get, I would say, let's if we can keep it there, unless you have an- another one somewhere else. But what's your favorite like moments or couple couple measures? Oh, oh, that, I love this question. Um, I <laughs> because I don't normally like think in these terms, but like yeah, well, because um, as a performer, you got You got to learn everything yeah, really exactly. well. You can't just <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. But um, but maybe some some highlights here. Well, you'll be in the in the first movement. So of course, there's there's this beautiful opening. <laughs> Which has that that uh, yeah that you were talking that chord about here you know yeah. it's it's all over the first couple the first few movements here so there's this fermata here uh, where it gets to the gets to the lowest note. All the way down here, it's open C. With a C sharp up to D, um, which is now the highest notes in the movement so far. There's a fermata um, telling the player to hold that notes. Um, The C sharp now bringing us into this, this new key, this D. Then it goes into this little episode. This entire episode, it's such a beautiful, um, like, it's just such a beautiful moment how he goes between different keys. I, in my mind's eye, I can picture like a, a flower, like a rose, like in bloom or, you know, in, mm. in, in early morning as a, uh, as, as the petals of a flower would, would, would open up, would awaken. Um, it goes through this, this turn, returning 
to this low D. You know, we, we came out of this high D. Not, not giving an answer to this great big question, maybe, or, you know, this, this big moment that's happened. Goes higher. Notes are close together. Returns to the depths. In in G major, the 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 original key, it doesn't sound conclusive though, because of the inversion of the chord. Where, yeah, we're we're which is really big, you know. Then kind of settles into this, so large intervals. Da 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 it sounds quite nicely in G, and then, you know, a couple beats later... There's all these... We got a C sharp, we got a B flat, a G sharp. We're kind of revolving chromatically around A. And, and so... So yeah, sounds like um, sounds like an A7 chord, a five of five of five. <laughs> then quite safely back in D. Well, we, yeah. we got C now. We C got natural C natural again, giving us so trying to bring us back to G. So, yeah. This occurs um, like on the offbeat, so bum dee da, so one, one and a two e and a three e and a da 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 bum ba da da dee da 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 dum. When I first learned this, my teacher told me to think of waterfalls yeah. cascading. I think it's a, I think it's, it's a good. It's it's kind of like a weightless feeling to me. It's like you've got this this kind of step on the beat, but then after that, you just like float off of it. So it's so beautiful. So. Playing around with this uh, this kind of build. Meanwhile, you've got an A pedal. Yeah, so we're in. F yeah. It's like five of five. So. And this this is the open string, everyone that we were talking about earlier. The yeah, exact so the exact same string. Everything resonating here. So again, with intonation choices, um, I'm gonna tune to this open A because well, the, the A can't help but be this this pitch. Um, yeah. So this note here, this E, if I'm tuning it to the A, it's gonna be higher than if I were to tune it to, um, to like, if I were building a C major chord, for instance. You can already hear the, it's, a, it's too high, you know. There's more, you know, a more justly tempered resonant uh, yeah. C. So, you know, the fretless 
instrument for all the pain it causes us, you know, also <laughs> is is our great our greatest uh, tool here. So yeah. here we go. When I hear these like sequences against open strings in Bach, I think rustic, you know, um, like, like yeah, bagpipes or something. Totally you know? folk yeah. music, like fiddle. You yeah, know totally. And that's that's what that's what fiddlers do, you know. Yeah. Like it's like wow, that sounds so complicated. It's really not. I'm just I'm going. But now and plus. Yeah. And that combination of left hand and right hand action. Now within that, that's where things. Um, that's where I can shape the phrase. Okay, I listened to your to, to you guys' episode um, on the first two episodes on the Brandenburg Concerto and how three was the magic number yeah. in the Trinity year. And what do we have here? We have the same uh, phrase repeated thrice here. So yeah. Uh, so. So another three, and then, okay, I don't know how many that was right there, but, um, This chromatic buildup on now a D pedal, the five. Now, now we're really like building up uh, to to the tonic. We had five of five for a while. Now we have five. And now, like ending on this arpeggiation of the chord, which is like it's like a higher, brighter version of this original chord that we had before. Tuning the, of course, tuning this chord. I want that B to be nice. I want that, those G's to match, and here's the chord. Yeah, so. And, and for the listener, like this, we're using like analytical terms here, but essentially the music has a home, a harmonic home, and that is G major. And what Alec is showing us is that the music spends, Bach spends so much time almost at home, but not quite. And that's the key of D in this case. And that prolongation that stretches out so much and so much and so many different ways is, I think, part of what makes the the music so heart-wrenchingly powerful, you know? Yeah, and just like the inevitability of getting to that home thing. It doesn't just, like you said, Alec, it doesn't just go, when it does that chromatic thing up mm. to the higher G, dun, 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 dun. when it gets there, you know you're not actually done yet because then the arpeggiation, like you said, it goes down, but it doesn't have G at the bottom yet. Yes, exactly. Right? And it so still you, has the D at the bottom. Yes. Yeah, so you know, the, like, the, yeah. the D is still enduring. So. Yeah, and then he gives, he gives another couple measures. So, okay, so... 
So here, here's that sequence again, maybe slowed down. So we're at that peak now. But we still have D here. Like, you couldn't end the piece there, you know? It's not like... It's like, no, we have to resolve this. Got this sus chord. This tritone. Okay, here we yeah. go. C goes down to B. F sharp goes up to G, D goes down to G. Hey, that string rang. Because these these notes are being played pretty much mostly most of these notes are being played separately, right, by the viola, but they're still chords. That's what's interesting is that they're just broken up. And so each line Bach knows needs to be followed to its conclusion. The top line in this case needs to go up and up and up and finally the top. The bass line, it has its own bass line, right? That needs to go to G at the end. Then there's also this inner part, which needs to resolve as well. So we know this. It could be chords, but it's even nicer the way it is, which is three independent lines that are broken up. Yeah, it's it's amazing how with one instrument, this counterpoint is is existing, and it's and and yeah, it's what you've described, ma like managing these these voices. Um, I mean, the, the 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 original arpeggiation of the chord and and and, and final here. Like, I'm playing those on three strings. Pretty much every player does. You could conceivably play it like... Um, across just two strings, maybe. Um, but there's such a beautiful ring to this. And... Mm. And yeah, the it's, G it's not, and it's D not like, ring together. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like one melodic singing line. It's like, and yet it is melodic, and it is singing, and and it collapses like at like the turn of a dime into into like a singular stepwise melody. Yeah. You know. And yet, right like there that. in that in that measure is still very clear what the harmonic quality is of it. Because those little stepwise things, whenever he starts them, it doesn't sound like suddenly it's meandering and it's lost its chord. It's just he's just so good at leading you along to the, the next chord. A lot of times they just kind of just like connect things and they lead you to the next chord. Yeah, we spoke about this in the Well-Tempered Clavier episode where the keyboard in the keyboard part, all the notes are broken up. But that's even more simple musical texture because it's just broken up chords throughout. But you can yeah. verticalize those chords and hear what it's supposed to sound like as chords. But that would make it a little bit less interesting. So the way the way it is now, like Alec is saying, it's brilliant counterpoint because Bach needs to use sometimes two, sometimes three uh, independent parts, and they all have to be played by one person. All the best and most enduring music. I'm making a huge statement here, but I think it's true. All the best and most enduring music has a be has a beauty and a some kind of simplicity, but also like has a lot of complexity to dig into it has both and this is a perfect example of that where it's made of these simple harmonic like broken down it's just like a set of chords that move from one to another and then they they 
they go in a way you you might think for this time period, and then they go they get to the end and they they resolve, and then it's broken up into arpeggios, and then it's got all this little connecting material, and each one is its own melody that's beautiful on its own. Like you said, Alec, it's all the counterpoint of all these different things, and then all these little episodes and all these little articulation choices really and all this stuff it just it becomes really complex i want to show you uh like an example of of this in a p in you know from the same suite where things are less uh you know things are less fast and condensed so we have here the saraband and and it says christian you described um where it's opening with with three voices um but it's it's also just it's going in and out of like this kind of singular singing line and then this like underlying bass so here's what that is so So there we have uh, multiple voices interacting this this bass. Um, so in the score, uh, we have the the lower two notes of this of this three note chord being beamed downward, with the highest note being beamed upward. So it's as if there are two voices, or maybe uh, one voice on top of a you know two voice accompaniment. You know, of course, I I, I like to do a lot of people like to break it up or you know play it as just like one resonant sound but um this another you know common practice and i think which follows in line with uh with the way it's beamed um is to let the highest note ring out that F sharp belongs to a lower voice. doesn't have to be either or yeah that's what's so great about this it's kind of like they they meet in the middle for that f sharp yeah so you have that e uh e those middle voices d e and then it comes up to that f sharp f sharp da, da, da. but then it's also that f sharp is also coming off of the top da, da, c yeah. so b, b c f sharp. b f sharp yeah because a, B, it's on the top it does feel like that's what's da, happening with the melody da, 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 da. yeah they they meet in the middle there yeah, it'd be so it'd be so much less interesting if these if it was actually three people playing, you know, because then mm. it would just be chords. It would be beautiful, but the fact that it works this way, it's a little more ambiguous. Which voices belong to which? How we listen to them? I think a really interesting question in appreciating music of this time period is like, what's the what's in the background texture wise? What's in the foreground? Of course, Alec, you th- probably think about this question a lot as the performer, 
But um, sometimes as a listener, it's interesting too. It's like, well, I remember how the melody goes like this, but Mm -hmm. are you like, is there, there's often a bass line, which is itself Mm -hmm. melodic in this time period. It's very important. The bass line is, and then these internal parts also have their own rules. So um, there's a lot of different ways to listen to this music, I would say. And, and this relates to the instruments that Bach, you know, chose uh, to write to write these pieces. Um, so this, uh, this suite is, is for cello. It's a bass instrument. It has that, um, that warmth, you know, so the bass line is, is super prominent. And then like, and, and these are dance movements. This is a Sarabande, uh, which is a, a dance in three. And it has dance, so it has dancing on top of the bass, that melody. So it's also a dance form. So it also has to conform to an, to this element of timing too, which is interesting too, because this this kind of this kind of suite is a dance suite. You had the minuet, you've got the sarabande. These are all old forms of dancing that Bach and people uh, around his time period took in an artistic way to write these um, these sort of more concert pieces. I'm not sure anyone's actually trying to dance to this, right? But uh, but it's a great jumping-off point for Bach to write something like this in that in that framework, you know. And um, so I don't. So again, we we don't know if um, if these pieces were even played during Bach's lifetime. But they pro- if they were, they probably weren't danced to. Um, hmm. These these are these dances were centuries old. You know, he was right. Like this is Bach like writing early music basically you know yeah yeah um these are these are old forms um but it's a so given that knowledge and given that in in my case i'm not i'm not playing this with with a dancer like i don't have to adhere to one and two and three and this this allows me to to bring out what i want to 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 bend time in these ways um, especially when I have big chords. It's not like on piano where I can just play the three notes all at once, boom, you know. I mean, if I were uh, playing it pizzicato, it would be easier to do that, even with three fingers. <laughs> Something like that. But with the bow, I have to do it like this. take more time there if I, if I want. Now, there's obviously a limit to this. It is written in this particular rhythm. I want to respect that. Um, I do I do like to play this uh, with with a metronome so that I can get a sense of like where beats would fall if if I were, you know, playing it in time, if I were playing it uh, to be danced to. Um, also, you know, with the Sarabande, there's a lot of emphasis on the second beat. 
So again, going back to choosing bowings, like I start this uh, this movement up bow. Yeah, and so that so for the listeners that don't know string instruments that well, you're starting the you're starting the first note up bow so that you can land on the second beat down bow so you can accentuate the second beat. A down bow is tip, typically more an accentuated thing. It's like, and this is a very clumsy analogy, but it's like imagine sawing like a piece of wood or something. If you are, yeah, <laughs> right. If you bring it toward you, wouldn't that be the That's analogous like to the down bow, bow right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it feels more powerful. And then the up bow, it still works, but I think when you're pulling toward you, it feels more powerful. It's like bicep versus yeah. tricep. Yeah, know? yeah, totally. Yeah. So this is the, th this touches upon this great enigma now for me as a viola player um, versus when cellists play this, or I, I, I guess basses for that matter, but they have their own uh, set of challenges with, with this piece. So, okay, so the cool thing about viola, the convenient thing is that I still have C, G, D, and A as my strings, uh, just like a cello does. Only now, my bow is upside down. Um, a cellist yeah. will have their instrument um, pointed downward to the floor so that on the down bow, on the right side of your instrument, on the down bow side of your instrument, you have the C string, the low string. So I'm not good at all <laughs> playing cello style, but um, if I... I can pull the bow and down bow, um, and then answer it, well, <laughs> you know, like that. Everything's just this flip from... Yeah, yeah it's completely um, it's completely the other other way around, yeah. in terms of the way the instrument is held. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, the, the bowings, it's like, so what does that mean for our bowings? Well, a down bow's still strong, you know, the directionality of it is, is different. Um, yeah. Which maybe can affect us more in, like... In, in, in faster in faster movements um, you know but I mean even in this slower movement um, so something I haven't like uh, something we string players don't do enough is like play this, the same pieces for players who don't play our same instrument yeah I I need to sit down with with a cellist just to see what bowings they're choosing and how and why uh, it would be different from from mine yeah. so and, and fingerings too do you That's ever compare your performance styles with cello performances just to see? Yeah, I I do, and and again, not enough. I mean, I you know, um, there is a way to sit down with with the best cellists in in, in the world, and that's just by watching their videos, right? Yeah. So, and well, the 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 things that like like impress uh, me the most are just the styles that they play. Misha Maisky, like. Ah, lots of vibrato, yeah. Kind of rough. Um, Rostropovich, um, also on that side, I guess those are just two Russians who, whose lifetimes largely overlap, I guess, but um, versus like a period performance of it. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, with, with, the, with the prelude, I think I have, I have the most, like, I've spent the most time watching, watching players do that. It's Boeing's really that that are the that are the most different. I think I remembered um, one of those two cellists like using more separate detached bows than I did. And um, and and maybe at a faster tempo as well. I like to slur things a little bit more. 
some players, cellists or violists or anybody, uh, might use even longer slurs. Just naturally, these different bones are like lending themselves to faster and slower tempos. Yeah. But. Yeah, those last three you played, they just have totally different characters. Yeah. The, the yeah. first one was so much more smooth, and you just had it down for half the measure and up the half of the measure. And the second one was mm-hmm. a little more tight sounding. The third one was really detached sounding, mm-hmm. right? Because you're so. you're you're so- switching off that sawing motion sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and now I'm and then I'm curious again as to like how cellists uh, bow it. I, I think I think you know it, it's generally still down bow, just that like the directions are reversed and what you're doing with the bow is is different so yeah yeah oh, that's cool and now alec plays for us here the minuets from cello suite number one on the viola first we hear minuet number one in g major then minuet number two in g minor then back to the g major minuet da capo literally meaning the head go back to the beginning also Tune in for a special bonus episode that we're going to release tomorrow, which will be a little bit more of the Alec interview, where we go into a little greater technical detail for another 15 minutes or so.
ornamentation on the second time. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the cello suites, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of those by the Netherlands Box Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram and a website, amomentofbach.com. So Alex, what's next week? Next week, we'd like to return to the Mass in B minor. The last time we touched on this was in episode one when we looked at the final movement of it. And for next week, we'll take a look at the Credo, which is the first movement of the second half of the whole work. And huge thanks to Alec for coming down with his viola and showing us all this awesome stuff. Thanks, yeah, Alec. Thanks, Alec. Thank you, guys. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm-hmm.